do it. <laughs> <laughs> Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and listeners, to another episode. Yes, another episode of Meaty Medicine, where two blokes sit down chewing the fat of all things meaty. In medicine, the man giggling away over there in the corner, <laughs> dulcet tones of Caven Garvey. How are you, my brother? I am incredible, Dwayne. Lovely to hear your voice, as yeah. always. Um, yeah. We've made it to episode seven. Is what? that right? Is that right? Jeez, <laughs> yeah. goodness me. That is, that is, that is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. I know. Seven is, too many, some would say. Seven, seven too many, absolutely. Uh, but you know what? Hearing that, Kevin, hearing that has, has literally has taken my breath away. And and I'll tell you what, <laughs> I'm coming back from the gym today. You're pretty, so pretty, bad. Pretty hard workout. Uh, you know, trying to get into trying to get into some sort of semblance of shape that you're in. Um and and mate, I was just like my dad's like changed the radio stations on my on my car because obviously I was in Melbourne and my car was over here, so he just had free mm. rain on it. And mate, he's put on like this old rock jam station on, and the song that was on it was uh, "Take My Breath Away." And like, <laughs> like, I don't know if you know that song, but it's an absolute classic. Um, and mate, I think because of that, and just the general lack of aerobic capacity that I've been feeling today, uh, mate, I want to, you know, because you're usually the one who suggests the topics to us. How do we feel about talking about asthma today? How do you feel about that? Mm, that's a super meaty concept um yeah i'm down let's do it ask for let's do it all right um get us started big guy yeah okay um let's see uh so asthma uh it's chronic inflammatory disease uh of your respiratory system and i think the name of the game here is your bronchi are just super hyper responsive um and it causes this uh reversible obstruction of airflow throughout uh your respiratory system um and you'll have these episodic exacerbations which we call in layman's terms uh asthma attacks uh (laughs) (laughs) so um yeah maybe we should just canvas before we dive into anything too scientific um Mm. Why don't we do risk factors, Dwayne? I'll chuck yeah. the ball back to you. What are, what are risk factors for asthma? And I really like the fact that you said layman as if we're like some, some established <laughs> medical professionals. Like we have literally picked the topic because I have no aerobic capacity and the rock station played Berlin's Take My Breath Away. So we are layman as well, guys. We are in the mud. With you. But risk factors, mate, look. Now, this is the weird thing, Kevin. We've, we've discussed the meat, haven't we, on this channel. We've mm. discussed the meat. And usually when we talk about risk factors or etiology or what's really causing it, we usually have quite, or we try to have quite defined, you know, reasons as to why this pathology is happening. But the weird thing for asthma is, although it is such a widespread situation, you know, we all know someone who has asthma, uh, the exact etiology of asthma remains unknown. But, mm. but throughout research not my research definitely not my research but but throughout more 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 uh, uh academic people's research we we've sort of compiled a list of some risk factors for asthma right so if uh, and the one that you know really sort of sings loud to me having worked in the clinical setting is the low socioeconomic status um so the low, with the low socioeconomic status it is sort of a a um, and especially with children um is that you you sort of get tied into there 
is that they can be exposed to a lot more allergens. They can be exposed to a lot more respiratory viruses. Uh, they can be exposed sometimes to secondhand smoke. Um, all, all things that are loosely or sometimes strongly associated with low socioeconomic status. So that is definitely a risk factor for developing asthma. Another thing that we learned at uh, medical school uh, this year was atopic dermatitis, atopic dermatitis, um, which essentially uh, means it's a sort of some sort of inflammatory allergic type of, of, of inflammation of the skin. Um, you know, eczema is a word that comes to mind. And, and maybe later we're going to talk about, you know, the actual pathophys. Well, not maybe, we definitely will. Uh, but we'll see how sort of having this pro-inflammatory immune situation happening in your system uh, can sort of uh, predispose and increase your chances to, to asthma. Having allergies as well. I had a mate, mate, who had peanut allergies back in, back in primary school. And then all of a sudden one day he had an asthma attack and I, I was now having flashbacks of it. And I feel like, and I was reading once again, in terms of having allergies, something to do with your immune status, something to do with your inflammatory status and the triggers in general uh, can predispose you to having, uh, to having asthma. And finally, uh, family history. Family history of asthma. We're not saying it's a definite look if your mum would, uh, if your dad had it, you have it, you know, something like that. But we're saying once again, these are just a general list, a general, I guess, collection, constellation, to use one of Kevin's favorite words, of, of risk factors that we know are implicated in the occurrence of that. I think the really important thing just to take out of that, uh, you mentioned the allergies and the dermatitis, but they're all part of this thing called the atopic triad, um, which is really important. And it's just this idea that uh, these things usually occur together. And that Mm. triad is uh, the eczema, allergies and asthma. And it's all because we'll get to it in the pathophys, but for some reason, um, your body just gets really triggered really easily by mm. allergens. Mm. Um, and <clears throat> that kind of pathophys underlines all these three conditions. So yeah. that's why when they're taking a history of someone um, which they th- who they think has asthma, um, they'll always ask if you have eczema mm. or any mm. allergies because they often kind of travel in packs. <laughs> Not yeah. a pack, yeah. I don't know, a triad. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think the key word you really said was trigger. Because that's yeah. the thing, isn't it? Is the fact that as soon as you've got that one thing that's already put your put your body on on standby on high alert, it's going to almost facilitate the occurrence of these other things as well. So something to really keep in mind: a clinical pearl by by the great Kevin Garvey right there. <laughs> um, well, mate, yeah, wait, I don't now know about I'm, that. No, no, I do, I do, because apparently we're all laymen. <laughs> we're all laymen compared to you, brother. Uh, but look. Hey, I've laid down some risk factors. Now tell me, what are talking about triggers? Do we know anything about the common triggers of asthma? Yeah, so this is something I think everyone is kind of vaguely aware of. So a lot of like environmental allergens, so things like pollen, um, animals, I think like mold, dust mites, things like that, just all these like small kind of particles that can get up inside get up inside you that is not <laughs> get up inside your face get up inside your airways <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly very um... antagonistic animals just walking around Jeez, just, just stepping people out i love it um yeah and there's things like uh from your occupation so if you work somewhere there's a lot of dust and mm. other things like that um yeah any of these things can kind of set it off uh allergic asthma but I think it's also just mentioning, we won't dive into it. There is all this, there's this other branch called non-allergic asthma, 
which um tends to affect like appearing older people like yeah, i think it mainly arises like when you're older than 40 um and that is where it's not the same pathophys so it's not like an allergic reaction but some kind of trigger and they're more like i don't know how to describe it triggers like cold air or exercise um sometimes infections um can cause you to have like an asthma syndrome um but it's got a slightly different uh underlying pathophys but i think that's all we'll say about that because the allergic asthma is the real importance yes uh part of this Mm -hmm. i reckon Mm Dwayne, do you agree (laughs) i fully agree i fully agree and and especially with the viral infection something really good to think about especially with kids is that when you're thinking about viral infections, you very rarely diagnose asthma in very young children. You usually diagnose it as bronchiolitis, uh, I think, but once they pass two and a half, three is when you start thinking asthma. So there is a bit of gray area there, but the real meat, the real meat is is definitely the allergic asthma. I didn't know that. Interesting. Okay. Hey, mate. Hey, us, uh, layman neuro- <laughs> us laymen have read some books, brother. Us laymen have read some books. This isn't a neurotopic where you can poo-poo me, mate. We're in the real world now, brother. We're in the real world now. I'm going to take your breath away. Oh, man. Oh. All right. All right, Mr. Big Dog. How about you tell me about the um, pathophys then? Yes, since yes, you... No, you're absolutely right, mate. Allergic asthma is the meat. And within the meat, we're going to really break down. Once again, we've got to remember what this pathophys. A lot of pathophys, we can tend to think that this is a stepwise, you know, thing. But we do that. We we break things down to help us understand and compartmentalize them. So we're going to do the same thing with asthma. We're going to break it down into three steps, yeah? The first step is initial sensitization initial sensitization now caven spoke about environmental allergens being a huge player pollen dust mites domestic animals mold spores um if it's you know allergens from your workplace uh, whether you work with wood or flour or dust example these allergens are, are presented when they enter your, your your constitution they are presented or rather they are taken up first of all by these things we call antigen presenting cells apcs um, and, and antigen-presenting cells, their job literally is to take these allergens, to take these antigens, not only in asthma, but in the general immune response, and to just trigger alarms, just trigger a proper uh, proper immune response. So these APCs, these antigen-presenting cells, are going to take these allergens, these antigens, whatever it is, and they're going to take them to the CD4 T cells, CD4 positive mm. T cells. And these T cells are then going to differentiate, activate and differentiate into T helper 2 cells, I believe, Kevin. Am I right there? Yeah, that's a really key point. T helper 2 is like the key villain in asthma. That's right. That's right. So whilst whilst all this and alongside all this stuff is happening, you've also got your B lymphocytes. So remember, you've got your T lymphocytes, right, that get a lot of the glory, I feel, but the B brothers are just hanging around. So they, they do a bit of work as well. And they actually synthesize uh, uh, IgE, immunoglobulin E, um, and 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 uh, on isotope switching. And this, the reason why they do this is T helper cells. One of their main jobs is to release chemicals, to release interleukins that are going to help turn up and are going to augment and fire up the reaction from the B lymphocytes. So remember your T helper two cells. They were differentiated. They are activated and differentiated by those APCs. They now release interleukin-4, 
one of my favorite interlupins of all time, I must say. If I'm ever in a question, <laughs> I don't know why, because I think four is quad, and I'm a quad Ross, and this is how it is. So, it's so arbitrary. What? Hey, hey, we are laymen. Leave us alone. All right? So, once again, activated T, T helper cell type. They're going to release these interleukins. That's going to stimulate the release of IgE. And I, IgE is a huge player in this, isn't this, Kevin? By, by, mm. lymphos- uh, by your B lymphocytes. And essentially, the end of the game is you've got these IgE binding to receptors on mast cells. I don't like mast cells. So I'm going to now pass it over to Kevin. I just, I just think mast cells are just niggly. I remember like studying it in the first block of immunology and we're like, yeah, what's that cell? Mast cell. And I've just never liked it. So I'm going to pass this on. IgE binding to receptors, mast cells situation onto the more academic of the two of us. From the label to the keyman, Kevin Garvey. Take it over. I just want to say though, like, the T helper two cells, they're like massive hype men, basically. So they, um, their main job. So Dwayne mentioned the B lymphocytes like fire up. That's really only because of the T helper two cells. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of this chain where you have the antigen presenter cells, kind of like almost like dobbing the antigen to the hype men, the T helper two cells, yeah. and then they turn on the B cells, and they're mm-hmm. the ones that can make the um antibodies so the ige um and then so now Dwayne's led us to the mast cells so yeah. basically what happens here is you have your b cells they get activated and they start they turn the factory on they're producing all these antibodies these ige um immunoglobulins and the special <laughs> stop laughing okay <laughs> um <laughs> So these immunoglobulin E's, the special thing about the E's is they have this kind of love affair with mast cells, the the um, immune cells that Dwayne doesn't like. No. And the thing about mast cells is they have those these special receptors specially for um, IgE, for immunoglobulin E. And what happens is, what do they... They kind of look like little coronaviruses, I swear. This is such a bad, oh like, analogy God. to draw because oh, it's geez. mixing medical oh, concepts. Trigger, trigger, <laughs> No, but yeah, right. Like, yeah. so you no, have mast exactly. cells sitting out in your tissue. Um, B cells are off somewhere else producing all this IgE and the IgE, mm-hmm. like, floats around your body, finds mast cells and, like, latches on to these receptors on the mast cells. So... Mm-hmm. What kind of your end product here is you have these mast cells sitting in your tissues that basically have all these antennas sticking out of them. That's how I like to think about it because that's literally what these IgEs are going to function as basically. They become these antennas for the mast cells that allow them to get triggered by stuff basically i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna chuck it back to you Dwayne, before i yeah, mate. make no, this any more confusing no no that's fantastic that's fantastic <laughs> so so essentially now what you've got is you've got mast cells you've got these ige binding onto these receptors but the end game of this first step of initial sensitization is that these mast cells are now ready for activation by these antigens by these things that people say are their triggers right so now we're going to move on to now the acute activation, which is the second step, but actually is what we call the 
immediate phase situation, right? The immediate phase situation. So once again, now, this allergen that we spoke about, right? Kevin mentioned dust, mold, animals, very angry animals who get up in your business. Apparently. <laughs> um, and and I, I thought it was like the hair or something on these animals, but apparently the whole animal just gets up into your respiratory <laughs> No. Anyway, the allergen comes across. That is a lie. Do not believe that. <laughs> so, so the allergen comes along and it binds and it cross links. It forms cross links with these IgE, which remember now are tethered onto these antenna like receptors on the mast cells. And Kevin was totally right in mentioning it like it looks like a coronavirus situation because it really does. When these mast cell, when this situation has now happened, the allergen is binded, it's crossed. Do you want to just explain that a bit more, Dwayne? Like what that even means? Like, so I just, I don't think that's that clear what that means. I think you're mansplaining a little bit. Oh. Like, I th- I think, actually, no, you're doing the opposite of mansplaining. You're assuming that you're assuming. I reckon like, because when you say crosslings, yeah. I think what's important there is like, so you have all these antennas sticking out of your mast cells and then an antigen comes along yeah. and um, it kind of hits multiple antennas at once and mm. The way I like to think about it almost is this isn't what happens just to clarify, but this is how I like to think about it is like you have like these two antennas and something comes along and like touches both of them and like connects them. And there's like an electrical current or something that passes Mm. across them. Mm. And then like you get the whole thing getting triggered, which isn't what happens. So I don't know how useful that is, but it's just this idea that an allergen comes along and like sticks to multiple of these antennas uh, branching off the mast cell. Mm. And then Mm. that triggers the mast cell basically. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, no, I'll tell you what, Kevin, I'm glad you, I'm glad you explained that because I'm going to say real honest, I don't actually know anything about that. It's just, a, <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's like you can go through medical education and you just learn like, you know, the stuff just for the sake of learning it. And you learn phrases like allergen comes and binds and forms crosslinks. So essentially right. what I was saying was like literally what I knew. So I'm really glad you explained that because through you, that's not only clarified it for our listeners, but it's clarified it for me as well. So this is a great example of Kevin Garvey just explaining stuff. <laughs> And I love it. I mean, I don't know if there's an electric current, but it's a potent image and it makes sense. And this is what we're about on meeting medicine. We just just break it down to the common denominator. All right. So before I derail you, uh, let's, how about you talk about what the mast cells do once they get triggered? That's right. So the mast cells are now triggered. There's a lot of triggers going on today, but the mast cells are now triggered. This nondescript electric current has fired them up and they release preformed chemicals, preformed mediators. Um, and, and what I want to pick on is, is, is two particular mediators, right? So the first one is something that we all know about is called, and we've heard about in multiple contexts, or just thrown around willy-nilly is, is histamine, right? So mm. histamine uh, comes from a family known as vasoactive amines. They're vasoactive amines, um, and they're granule stores within these mast cells. Now, vasoactive literally means i mean i'm not sure if it literally means so let me apologize there but to me what it means is it's it's activity is going to be something to do with blood vessels right so that's what i take away from it so mm. the release of this histamine from the granule stores from the mast cells that have been triggered by the electric current from the cross-linking they're going to result in vasodilation right so your so your blood vessels become quite relaxed 
and it's actually going to increase the permeability of your blood vessel. So essentially, mm -hmm. usually blood vessels, uh, and in fact the cells that, that 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 make up the walls of your blood vessels and stuff, they tend to they tend to be quite tight. They tend to be quite well connected, well adhered. They have a lot of junctions amongst them, and, and things are not just able to go in and out in terms of from intravascular inside the blood vessel to extravascular outside the blood vessel willy-nilly but i mean i think they i think they are but it's just like the degree to which they yeah, are right yeah, absolutely yeah. so histamine histamine is gonna make your blood vessels just far more it's gonna increase the permeability factor of the blood vessel let's 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 uh it kind of lowers their standards heaps it like they starts letting a lot more stuff through basically that's what i, I like to yeah. think of i like to think of and because i'm not being to the clubs too much because i'm a good boy <laughs> but essentially like you know, you have that club and then like the bouncers at the start of the night, they're like, mate, they're like real onto their standards. And then just by the end, like they have a look around and there's actually not that many people in the club at all. And they're like, look, <laughs> we're about to play Venga boys. Let's just get everyone in. <laughs> so once again, electric, electric current situation. We're not quite sure if that was fully scientific. I'm, oh, but this is how I think about vascular permeability. Um, mm -hmm. David, is there anything else that's released by these mast cells? Yeah, so the <clears throat> the other really important mediator are the leukotrienes. And the so they're a lipid mediator, but the important point to make is that um mast cells kind of have these granules of histamine ready to go. So as soon as they get triggered, like within seconds, they're just pumping out that histamine. Whereas with leukotrienes, um, they actually need to produce them when they get triggered. Mm -hmm. So it takes about 10 minutes for the leukotrienes to actually um, start appearing. And what the leuko, oh, it might be leukotriene. I don't know. I, I think either is valid. Yeah. What do you yeah. say, Dwayne? I, oh, goodness. I say leukotrienes. I say leukotrienes. Okay, okay, yeah. good, good. Yeah. We're going with leukotrienes. <laughs> um, leukotrienes, what they do is they're really um, potent um smooth muscle constrictors mm. so and especially for your the smooth muscle in your bronchi mm. so they cause like a really intense bronchoconstriction so it tightens your airways um which it essentially mimic it is an obstructive issue now you um you'll have trouble getting air out of your lungs basically. Yeah. And um, so, but because it needs to be produced as opposed to the histamine, which is ready to go, it takes about like 10 minutes um, for that to kind of, uh, that bronchoconstriction to really um, amp up. Because I think histamine has a little bit of a bronchoconstrictive effect, yeah. but yeah. it's nowhere near the level of the leukotrine. So it's like, yeah, like the histamine's like the kind of infantry with the constriction and then the cavalry comes in with the leukotrienes and yeah. they just like really mess you up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so those are the two really important mediators in terms of the three. It, for this whole kind of acute activation, um, I think it can really be characterized by the smooth muscle contraction, so your bronchoconstriction, uh, edema, which is because of the increased vascular permeability from the histamine, yeah. um, as well as vasodilation because you're getting more blood shunting towards that area. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, the dilation of the blood vessels. So those are the kind of important effects that are happening during the acute activation, which is your asthma attack, basically. 
That's right. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else, Strain? Mate, no, that was that was fantastic. And and so what we've talked about is the initial sensitization and the acute and the acute uh, activation, uh, right? The immediate thing. Yeah. But unknown, and I, this is something that I only learned this year, mate, is the fact that there's actually a third phase, and that's that late phase reaction. And in fact, you know, talking to talking to some of my friends, um, because I do have friends, so talking to some of my friends who have <laughs> asthma, I have friends with asthma. Um, talking to them, it's not too uncommon, Caden, to have an asthma attack, like we say in layman terms, to have an asthma attack, but then somehow, and then you think it's all chilled, obviously you're still struggling a little bit with your breathing when you're taking your puffers and stuff, but then actually hours later to actually almost have a secondary attack. It's not an, it's not an always, mm. but it's not too uncommon either. And, and, and what this third phases this is called the late phase reaction and quite commonly it happens usually in the ballpark of eight to 12 hours post when all of this began right so it's, yeah. it's well after your acute phase and essentially these mediators that remember let's remember the mast cells release the mediators that we talked about right they released the histamine there was a vasoactivamine they released the leukotriene which we may or may not be mispronouncing but it's okay um, but especially, I believe it's the histamine. I may be wrong here. No, but- no. So those those vasoactive amines and the so the histamine and leukotriene, they're just short term. It's really the cytokines okay. that cause the uh, late phase reaction. Do we do we sure. feel do we feel the fact though that the histamine, you know, increase vascular permeability? Do we not feel there may be a chance with us, or is that just purely down to the cytokines? Well, I don't think histamine hangs around for 12 hours. Yeah, that's a great uh, that was my impression. No, no, that's, a, that's a fair call. I could be. No, no, no. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. Um, but no, fair enough. So you've got so you've got mediators, you've got the cytokines uh, that are released, and they're really going to drive the inflammatory response, which is a huge part of this late-phase reaction, right? So the main things we want to get out of this is the fact that you're going to have recruitment and activation of your white blood cells, uh, especially the eosinophils, uh, which which tend to be involved uh, with this. And the main takeaway from this is from this inflammatory response, from this delayed reaction, you're going to have cell infiltration and then you're going to have sustained edema and that smooth muscle contraction is going to be there as well, right? So this is the main thing is that it's the inflammatory response and just the mass movement and the effects of white blood cell infiltration and the edema that really characterize the late phase reaction. Yeah, so it's kind of just like a milder secondary uh, attack that's kind of a result of all these cytokines and things that were released uh, earlier in that acute attack, like hours earlier. Um, But I think the whole idea of like if you're treating them by um, imposing anti-inflammatory like therapy, you can kind of stop this late phase reaction happening anyway. I yep. think that's yep. the idea. Um, so yeah, speaking of that, should we move more into the clinical stuff now? Yeah, mate. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. You well, you're the master of the oh, clinical situations, Dwayne. So oh, how about no. you? You yeah. us all. Yeah. So so. Um, we're gonna we're gonna break this down first of all into symptoms and signs, okay? And I think this is a really important thing that once again I've I've sort of come to realize is that the signs and symptoms are very different. Symptoms are what 
subjective information you get from your patients, what they report or what, you know, what their experience is, whereas signs are usually objective measures. So when you're talking about vital signs, when you're talking about blood pressure, respiratory rate, oxygenation, stuff like that, those are signs. Those are objective things. But if a patient says to you, man, I'm, I'm feeling breathless or I'm feeling short of breath and stuff, that is technically a symptom. So the two main things that we want to talk about in terms of symptoms for asthma, because there's a whole heap of them, but let's talk about a couple of symptoms and a couple of signs. And let's use these to really quantify them into mild, moderate, and severe asthma. Okay, mild, moderate, and severe. So the first thing is breathlessness. Breathlessness is a common symptom of asthma, of an acute asthmatic attack. And if it's a mild asthma attack, um, your patient's going to report feeling breathless whilst walking. Report feeling breathless while walking. Uh, now, obviously, you've got to take into consideration what's their normal level of activity, yada, yada, yada. But the patient is reporting, man, I usually don't feel breathless while walking, but now I'm feeling breathless while walking. That's a mild asthma. In terms of moderate asthma, moderate severity of asthma, talking about breathlessness, they may feel breathless either when they're walking, but also a little bit at rest there as well, okay? But if it's a severe asthma, then even when they're absolutely immobilized, trying to stay as still as possible, whether they're in bed or they're in a chair or whatever they're doing, they're feeling rather breathless, okay? So breathlessness is a huge, uh, it is a common symptom. What are you tackling away for? I just feel like you're really, you just love this breathless thing, don't you? Like, bro, just say like, okay, yeah, they have asthma. They're probably breathless. I'm going to tell you later why breathlessness is important. The second thing. Okay, okay. I'm going to put it down to my clinical naivety. I'm sure it's very important. Um, I agree though, breathless. Yeah, well, look at you trying to, trying to make me feel good about my breathlessness. All right, I'm going to be more efficient like Haven. Ability to speak is a really good thing as well. If your patient can speak in full sentences, then it's probably like a mild attack. If they can just string a few phrases together before they need to take a breath, hashtag breathlessness, hashtag 2020. Um, but if they're struggling to even mouth out singular words, individual words, then that's a severe thing as well. There. Any any other sort of symptoms or anything that you want to add to that, Kevin? Yeah, I think breathlessness and ability to speak are the big symptoms. I think, yeah, maybe move on to the signs. Yep. So I think, yeah, like signs, I don't know, this is weird to me because I thought it was a symptom, but I guess it's kind of like in the gray zone. So they'll be like wheezing mm. um, and mm. wheezing is a sign of an obstructive issue. So that means they're having trouble getting air out of their lungs. So that's, that's why right. you also see wheezing, I think, sometimes in like COPD. That's right. Uh, that's I think. Right. Um, but anyway, yeah. And then the severity is obviously tied to how bad their asthma is. Absolutely. So, yeah, they'll have moderate wheezing. Uh, this is obviously very kind of like subject, not subjective, but not – you know, just like use clinical reasoning. Yeah, um, it's like but, your yeah. it's like your assessment of that. So if they're wheezing and you're just hearing it at the end of the exhalation, then we put that down as a mild situation. If it's yeah. quite loud and you're hearing it right throughout the time that they're exhalate, uh, exhalating, exhaling, then it's moderate. <laughs> uh, but if it's if it's on inhalation and exhalation, then you're really getting worried as to the degree of uh, airway obstruction. And one thing to yeah. really mention here is the fact that sometimes it can it can actually, just because you don't hear a sound doesn't mean that it's good because in status asthmaticus, which is actually the most severe thing, like they need to go to ICU stat, 
they can sometimes be this absolute complete obstruction. So oh. it, it can be quite serious as well. So when I started off, I thought, oh, if the louder the wheeze is, you know, or more prolonged it is, the worse it is. Well, the worst thing actually is when they're absolutely silent because it means you're not getting any movement of air whatsoever. So they need, mm. they need to be intubated. Okay. Into okay. Yeah, a good little clinical point there, Dwayne. I like it. I like it. Um, <laughs> I think another important one is just like their respiratory rate. So obviously like the less oxygen they're getting, the yeah. faster their respiratory rate is going to be to like try and compensate for that. So um, you, yeah, in an asthma attack, they will be breathing faster. I think if it's like an insanely severe asthma attack, it will be like really, really high respiratory rate. I think it's yeah. like, higher than 30 a minute or something. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's just another sign. Yeah. Um, any other signs, Dwayne? No, mate. No, you're totally bang on, but I just want to keep, I don't know, I don't know I was sort of stressing on it before, but yeah, breathless. No, I, I mean, the, the key thing is to know what your patient's baseline is. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You need to know what your patient's baseline is because, yeah, because yeah. If, if, uh, especially with respirate, okay, we, we need to know what's normal for the patient because that's the only way we will know, mm. number one, how bad the situation is, but number two, how effective our therapy has been. So you need to get a baseline understanding of what's normal for your patient. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Um, cool. I think we've got a decent clinical picture. Um, mm. So uh, diagnostics? Yeah, that's probably going be, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. What, what, yeah, what well, the only thing... Yeah, the only thing I really know about it is, in terms of tests, is that whole spirometry situation. Mm. So it's this thing where um, it's a test for obstructive lung issues and basically you just get them to, like, blow as, like, I think, like, as hard as they can into Mm. this little receptacle thing. I don't know what to call it. And um, a spirometer? I don't... Oh, that would make sense, wouldn't it? That is the the actual name for the... The spirometry <laughs> machine is called the spirometry. But sure, receptacle is, is equally is equally appropriate. <laughs> um, yeah, so they blow into a spirometer and you're just kind of seeing um, the kind of both the volume and this like rate at which mm. they're blowing air out. And within obstructive issue, you'll kind of notice that uh, this thing called the FEV1 over FVC ratio Uh, is lowered so all that means is so fev1 is forced expiratory volume i think in one second and then so that's obviously kind of like a measure of how fast they can get air out and then fvc is just um uh forced vital capacity i think so just how the total amount of air they can blow out so i think the idea is um they basically just get slower at blowing air out. And that's because their um, airways are obstructed basically. Cause like we talked about, it's constricted um, and you know, there's edema and all this kind of stuff in the way. Yeah. Um, what do you know about diagnostics, Dwayne? I don't yeah. actually know that much about yeah, it. Yeah. No, no, no. And, and, and Kevin is absolutely right. The receptacle, um, uh, the spirometer, <laughs> Is the, is the, you would almost say, the gold standard. But in terms of actual clinical thing, okay. clinical experience, it is actually really hard to just find spirometers. Um, like usually, usually, <laughs> what? 
No, like I'm serious. There's like, like this rare object that no, you have no, to no, kind no, of go no, on a quest to well, discover. Well, yeah, well, pretty much. I mean, if the patient's <laughs> breathless, then they, they can't make the quest. No, um, but essentially what I'm trying to say is, is that asthma is a one of, is one of those things where it's a clinical diagnosis. It's a clinical oh, diagnosis. Yeah. So you're seeing this constellation of signs. You're seeing this constellation of symptoms. Um, you're, you're looking at sort of the history that the patient has either given you or whoever the ambulance has brought you in, uh, it's brought the patient in has given you. Um, and then you're saying, okay, yeah, odds on this is asthma. Now, when you get to a spirometer, that will help confirm it. But it doesn't mean that you need that to diagnose asthma to initiate treatment. Where I right. see in a spirometer used more often is that if, if you can find it, they will actually use it to, to, to yeah, because it is actually quite rare. I don't think I've ever used a spirometer in the hospital, like in my life. So maybe it's just a New Zealand thing. We don't use spirometers. I don't know. But, but I have never a spirometer deficiency in That's New it. Zealand at That's the it. moment. That's it. But... Uh, uh, but the thing is, spirometers can also be used not only for diagnosis, but to evaluate how effective treatment has been or therapy has been. Oh, yes. So, so that's the thing is that although spirometers are gold standard here in the land of the long white cloud, we don't necessarily need a spirometer, mate. To, we use common sense and clinical judgment and we just get the done. <laughs> I think that's actually, isn't that another kind of diagnostic test in that you'll do the spirometry, then you'll like give them, you know, I don't know, like a beta agonist uh, to open up their lungs and then you'll do it again. And if they like improve, that's right. I think that's another way they can like confirm you have asthma. That's it. And that's really feeding into your opening statement of this podcast, mate, is the fact that it's a reversible, it's a reversible Mm. situation. So you're totally right. If it was yeah. irreversible, it ain't going to do nothing. You can blow on your receptacle all day. That's not good. <laughs> so you're absolutely right there, mate. You're absolutely right. All right. Well, I think we've kind of arrived at uh, treatment. Yes. So, Dwayne, I'm going to chuck you in the oh, deep end. No. <laughs> I, I, I hate explaining treatment because I do it in the common way. Then came and just like, well, actually, mate, this is the way it should be. Um, all right. So let's, let's go with the treatment. Um, so I'm going to talk about the reliever. I'm going to talk about the reliever because oh, I'm taking it. the easy one. That's it. That's it. Low hanging fruit, brother. Low hanging <laughs> fruit. We're all labored here at the end of the day, right? So, in any case, the preferred reliever uh, it belongs it belongs to something known as uh, it's a short acting beta two agonist, right? Short acting beta two adrenergic agonist. I like to call it a beta agonist. So, yeah. so what? I'm going to throw it really quick back to you, mate. Just for one word, for one word, give me an example of your favorite Saba, your favorite short. Oh shit! Well, isn't it? Oh, is it salbutamol? Is that right? Okay. Salbutamol. Yep. So salbutamol is yeah. what came. In. The rest of us <laughs> said butamol. Salbutamol. You're totally right, mate. You're absolutely bang on. So salbutamol oh, is the most common common Saba, uh, short acting beta agonist, and essentially, when you when you inhale it. Or when you take these puffers, it, the, the the number of times depends, but usually it's six puffs and six breaths for each puff. Um, um, it, they 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 activate your those beta two receptors, and their long story short is going to re, uh, result in a relaxation of your smooth muscle, so all of that bronchoconstriction that Kevin spoke about before, and it's going to help to dilate and open up your airways, get a bit more oxygen in there make sure that we're releasing or we're relieving rather the mm. situation. 
And that's why it's really useful for that acute asthma attack. That's why that's what they'll use. That's why it's a reliever because in that acute asthma attack, the major issue is those leukotrienes are just squeezing your airways. That's right. Um, so this directly combats that, right? Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. And, and and another clinical gem here um, uh, is that it's always more advisable to use or to administer salbutamol using a spacer, using a spacer, because essentially what a spacer is, it looks like, you know, just a, a plastic chamber. What, but what the spacer is doing is making sure that that inhaled drug that you're taking is actually getting well down into your airways where it actually needs to act rather than just accumulating in your oral cavity. So a spacer, if you've got the puffer by itself, it's okay. But the spacer makes sure and it's optimizing the reach of that drug to the, to the airways that really need to be dilated. Mm-hmm. I actually remember I didn't even know what a spacer was till like, <laughs> like a year or two ago when I walked I walked into uh my college bathroom and one of the girls there was using a spacer I think for her controller which we'll talk about in a second yeah, yeah, but it yeah. is quite a contraption mate like I was for a second pretty terrified mate. I had no idea what was going on because you had this massive plastic it's like container I no, it's not a container it's like a chamber it's a chamber it's I was whole... gonna say it's a chamber and we used to use it in high school we used to use it to play rugby uh, and, and gridiron. Like, we used to use it instead of a ball because it's quite a handful. What? Yeah. Wait, what? One of our mates had asthma and he had a spacer. He had this chamber. <laughs> so in the lunchtime, we didn't have a ball. We used to use his spacer as the rugby ball. <laughs> what is this Tales from Dwayne in the Indian slums in New Zealand? Mate, I grew up in New Zealand, mate. <laughs> What are you? What are you talking about? The, oh, <laughs> mate, we'd have bloody pollution triggers, mate. We didn't have there. Kevin, you're angering a great people in here in New Zealand, mate. About seventy-five percent of our followers, so watch out. Watch out. All right, I'm just gonna close that book and move on to the controllers. So, Dwayne talked about the relievers and the fact that they're usually um short-acting beta agonist Sabers, mm. um, which is also a male clothing brand, I think. It's quite upmarket. <laughs> Fun fact. Kevin's describing these socioeconomic schisms in the group. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I'm just trying to get a sponsorship deal from Saba, all right? I want to get some fly designer clothes. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Tell me, tell um, me about these, uh, whatever you were going to say before you chucked in your face. yeah so so the other part of the treatment is um a controller mm-hmm. oh and i think the other thing we should just mention is that your treatment kind of strategy depends obviously on how severe uh, your asthma is classified as mm-hmm. um and there are a few categories ranging from mild intermittent to severe persistent yeah. Yeah. and that's kind of diagnosed based on things like um, like Dwayne said, it's like uh, how often you're getting your symptoms, if it's coming on at night, and then they will might confirm it with that FEV test. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I think for no matter what stage of asthma you have, they'll give you the reliever Dwayne talked about just yeah. in case. So if you have an attack, you can get it under control. Yeah. Um, but then the controller, this is where the kind of creativity comes in between uh, the stages of severity of asthma. Yeah. So um, I think the kind of underlying theme of the controller is it's some kind of like inhaled corticosteroid. So 
um, coming hot off the back of our Cushing syndrome oh, episode. We are, we are experts on corticosteroids, <laughs> somewhat. Jeez, <laughs> um, I can barely remember anything we said in that. It's so worrying. No, um, no. <laughs> the corticosteroids essentially are like, we know are really anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the immune crushes, bro. Yeah. IMMC. Yeah. There we go. That's Bit it. of a plug for our Cushing episode. <laughs> go back and go back and listen to that one. That was fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, fuck. So off, so off the track. Um, preferred controller controllers. So classic drug they'll use is inhaled corticosteroids, and then. Um, kind of how often they you take that depends on how severe your asthma is and they might you know sprinkle in some other spices as well um, yep. not literal spices just other kinds of drugs that that might help along the way um so i think in the worst case you might have a laba a long-acting beta agonist yep. paired with your inhaled corticosteroids and then um for like less severe situations you can have other kind of more interesting drugs there is a whole range like there are leukotrine uh ones that attack leukotrines there are ones that are like muscarinic antagonists but i don't think that's very meaty Mm. i think just remember relievers are sabers um and controllers are inhaled corticosteroids with a few spicy things absolutely Um, In terms of what Kaven said, totally right. We are focused on if you have a friend with asthma, if you if you yourself have asthma, these are the things that are going to be in your inhalers. But the the more sort of you know spicier ethnic um, you know drug, the the leukotriene and the muscarinic stuff. This is the stuff that we will give you in the hospitals if we find that first line is not working. Okay, so then this is the way it's going to work. So, but first line, like Kaven said. In terms of your reliever, is going to be your Saba, uh, your Sal. What did you say? Sal Butamol or something? Sal Butamol. <laughs> and, and your control situation is going to be an inhaled corticosteroid. And- Wait, is that actually true, Dwayne? I thought the Leukotrine and the Muscarinic ones were more for like long term treatment. Hey, I have I never, I've never actually seen like a Leukotrine one, which is Montelukast. Take yeah. it away from the, I mean, the oncology, we have different rules there. But I've seen them, like, pop those ones in when it's just going, especially the muscarinic stuff, when it's just right. going absolutely, like, when you're in a code with asthma. But oh. if, if they find then that the Montelukast has been effective, you can use that acutely. And if it was the game changer and the acute thing, they can sometimes then make a special sort of Montelukast mm. as part of your management plan. But okay. usually the main meat is is your is your uh, reliever and the controller as you have described. Yes. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. So it really is a bit of an art form. It sounds it like is. they're just seeing what works. Yeah. Okay. And just to give a plug for what you said, this is where the spirometry tests come in. This is where the spirometry comes <laughs> yes. in. Yes. This is going to help them. The res- the respiratory receptacle uh, is going to help work out. <laughs> What, what, because like, like, obviously one thing we've not touched on, Kevin, we're not going to dwell on it too much. Drugs have side effects, right? So we want to make sure that this, that the drugs that we're giving you, there's always a balancing act between the change that we're getting in terms of, you know, you know, therapeutic uh, excellence and therapeutic benefit, but also on the other side, and we touch on it with Cushing's, 
what are the side effects. So the quicker that we can modify and really fine-tune your maintenance and especially your management, your long-term management, the better. So it is a trial and error thing, both with feedback from the patient, but also using objective measures like the FEV1, FEC ratio and stuff like that. Mm, mm. Well, yeah, I've got nothing more to comment, to be honest. I've got, um, I've got one question for you, mate, if you don't mind. Oh, I'll, God. You've actually blitzed through the whole thing. Um, you mentioned <laughs> before when you first noticed your friend or a girl using the the spacer, the chamber, right? Mm-hmm. That. Mm-hmm. Why were you in the uh, same uh, bathroom as a uh, female um, using the <laughs> I'm not some deviant, do I? No, it was. I'm, just, I'm, uh, I'm sure I'm getting messages about it. Uh, I was just wondering, I was wondering if you just wanted to explain that. Oh no, um, yeah, at our undergraduate college, uh, we had shared uh, gender bathrooms, right, so right, we you right. really, mate, um, yeah, no. So you really see it. I don't want to say anything. I'm going to regret. <laughs> Oh man. Um yeah, no, just yeah, so that was one of the things I encountered during my undergraduate fair years. Fair enough, fair enough. That's good. No, I just look it wasn't it wasn't a malicious question. I just thought I would throw that out there and see if it caught an edge to the slips and <laughs> So no, that's, that's You're an evil man. <laughs> oh, oh well. Okay. Um awesome. Yeah. I think we have done a very kind of, we've done a crash course in asthma. I think, you know, the thing about asthma is that, you know, because it's so pervasive, there's so many little details to this. Um, but, you know, us, we're, we're here for the barbecue, just chucking the snags on the barbecue, just the meat. That's it. That's it. A few onions, eh? A few yeah. clinical Mate, I'll tell you what, I went, to, I went to a barbecue the other day and, and <laughs> unbeknownst to me, the person hosting the barbecue was a was a vegan uh, vegetarian get out why is she having a barbecue no, well, look 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 be careful first of all you and i don't even <laughs> want to get into this because i said all of this and got shot down but in any case mate i saw i went to the barbecue the first thing i do at a barbecue i go straight over and i check the meat i don't know why I, i'm not sure I don't, like, indians are not great barbecuers but like for some reason i feel like i would drink head over to the barbie that that's what i do <laughs> And mate, I saw these weird like things roasting on the cooking on the barbecue, and I thought they were like burger patties or something. Turns out, mate, portobello mushrooms, portobello mushrooms. Yo, what? Do you know how? First of all, it was well above my pay grade. Secondly, you know what it is like eating something that you think is like a beef patty, and it turns out to be a shroom, a mushroom. Sorry, not a shroom. A portobello mushroom. And and I thought I would just share that with you. And and ever since then, I have. Yeah, I just, I just didn't want to, didn't want to really partake in it anymore. So that is just utter duplicity. Did she inform you that no, mate. it was no, a no. vegetarian? It was, it was one of those things, mate. It was one of those things where it's like a friend of a friend's, like, "Hey, what are you up to tomorrow night?" My mate's hosting a barbecue, and it wasn't someone mm. I'd ever met. So I think the friend mm. that I knew, obviously, if I knew it was a vegan barbecue, I would either take, either I wouldn't go, or I would. <laughs> Or I would take my own barbecue and then just roast me. <laughs> but, but no, portobello mushrooms on barbecue. Oh, wow. That's, That's... Like what the kids are doing these days. <laughs> I must say, I do enjoy a mushroom, but uh, not when I'm expecting a big load of meat, to be honest. <laughs> and on that, and on that, 
from the lips of the Prince of Persia, I do love a mushroom, but not what I'm expecting a load of meat. We're going to leave it here for episode seven. Kevin, this has been a privilege and a pleasure. And we will oh, man. time on Meaty Medicine. Bye for now, my bro. Bye. Yeah, mate. Great to talk as always. See you Bye. soon. See you, mate. Bye. <laughs>